This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 9, Freudian Psychoanalysis. Okay, Freud. I'm sure some of you have read Freud in high school, and I'm sure some of you have read Freud before. Okay, can I ask everyone to put all their computers away? You just get to listen to me now. I'll try to be entertaining. Um, so I left you with the Bolshevik Revolution, which bleeds into a gruesome civil war that goes on for the next three years um, and culminates in the creation of the Soviet Union. Um, it's a very long story, which I'm not going to tell you today. In 1924, Lenin dies prematurely of a stroke. That is one of those moments which historians have obsessed about since then. There has been much written on the topic of what if Lenin had lived, one of those moments of contingency. But he dies prematurely of a stroke in 1924. That leads to a power struggle between Trotsky and Stalin. Um, the very short version of that power struggle is that Stalin wins. Um, Trotsky is going to be pursued to the ends of the earth, in this case to Mexico, where one of Stalin's henchmen is going to eventually kill him with an ice pick. If you want to commune with this episode, um, it appears in somewhat fictionalized form in the film Frida, about the great artist Frida Kahlo, who was one of Trotsky's last lovers um, in Mexico. It's a great film in general. Um, conceptually, one of the key breaks between Trotsky and Stalin had to do with this idea of international workers' revolution. Remember I said that Lenin was making a wager on international revolution. He really believed that any moment now, workers all around the world were going to rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. And so any of these provisional arrangements that you made, you know, say with Germany, were not going to be relevant because a worldwide workers' revolution was about to come. Um, Stalin, somewhat opportunistically, um, when it turns out the worldwide workers' revolution is not coming, declares socialism in one country. Meaning socialism can be built, meaning really communism can be built in the Soviet Union even if the worldwide workers are not rising up together. Um, Trotsky is going to insist on permanent revolution. In that sense, he's going to maintain a kind of classical Marxist um, position. But what I want to just put in your heads about this, and we will return to it in subsequent lectures, is what grows into a totalitarian state of a kind not previously known in, in history. Um, one of the explanations or perhaps original sins that led this to happen had to do with the rushing of history. Um, although, again, causality and history is always speculative because you can't go back and do a control study on real life. Um, but they're also, they run into the problem, the Bolshevik Revolution, that the French revolutionaries ran into, which Robespierre described during the French Revolution as we have raised the temple of history with hands still withered by, by the cross of despotism. So the creators of the new world 
are always already contaminated by having been born into and formed by the old world. So how do you get from the old world into the new world when you don't have pure people? Because all of those people have already been formed by the previous conditions of oppression, by the old regime, by the ancien regime. Um, so I wanna put that into your head um, because that motif will come up again and again. What about people? Can people be transformed? Can they be re-engineered? You know, can you kind of reset them from inside in the middle of their lives or do you have to start over again with the next generation? It's kind of like the Moses problem. Remember like Moses leads the Jews out of Egypt, that's the Exodus, you've probably heard that story before, and then he has to wait for 40 years for everybody to die out who had the mentality of slaves in the desert because it's only the new generation who can enter the promised land. So this idea about the creation of, of human beings, of pure subjects, um, um, and the question about the extent to which human subjectivity can be transformed in the course of one's life, that's going to run through today too. Um, the tone of totalitarianism that we're going to be talking about really for the rest of this course that comes into being during Stalinism has to do with a regime that is based on a draconian and ideology with claims to absolute truth um, a kind of messianic movement, institutions of terror, monopolies over communications, um, monopolies over armed forces, and perhaps above all for our purposes, a kind of attempt at a panopticon state, a state that can see you wherever you might be, that is watching you wherever you are, and this eclipsing of the private realm this idea that the distinction between public and private realm is effaced. Yeah, and we'll go back to that um, in subsequent lectures, but I just want to note it now because it will underline some of the things that we'll talk about today as they're kind of coming up. Um, the Bolsheviks take the Enlightenment idea of human and social perfectibility literally. The idea that we know the world, we can control the world, we can reshape the world, we can move towards perfection. They take that extremely literally. And the attempt is going to be social engineering on a grand scale. The notion of that, that writers, that intellectuals, that people serving the regime, they are engineers of human souls. They are there to create a new man. And this begs the question of what is man and what is human subjectivity. So we've been talking a lot about temporality the past couple sessions. Now we're gonna, when we're gonna turn again, we're gonna talk about the human subject. What is the human subject? What is human subjectivity? What is the self? And the goal that the Bolsheviks have will be of kind of identifying oneself and consciousness so completely and so intensely with the iron laws of history, with history capital H, that there is no more distinction. That you are completely transparently identified with history. So remember Hegel's the I that is a we and the we that is an I and that is spirit. That idea of Hegelian Geist, which is kind of vague and abstract in, in Hegel, although Jay Bernstein gives it more of a concrete form with his Yankees analogy. But the we that is an I and the I that is a we and that is spirit, that which is kind of metaphysical 
in Hegel. They're going to take it as literally as possible in the Soviet Union. Can you completely identify the I with the we? Um, and the, the idea that that has to be absolutely seamless, the identification of the objective and the subjective of the first person singular and the first person plural has to be absolutely seamless. Anything that is subjective and not identical with the objective and the first person plural is to be purged. And this is the, this is the attitude. And this is captured in a famous dystopian science fiction novel by Yevgeny Zamyatin um, titled We, which is the inspiration for um, Orwell's 1984, for those of you who are interested. I think it's a better book than 1984. The, the genre is not my favorite in any case, this dystopian science fiction. But if you're into that, it's worth reading the original, um, which has long been translated to English from 1924. And there's a line in there in which Samyatin writes, we comes from God. I comes from the devil. You know, the idea is you overcome the I. The I is Alf Gehoven in, in the we. Okay, so I'm going to kind of continue now as we move into Freud with this I-we dialectic from Hegel. Um, and one of the questions is going to be what is the privileged term? Is it the first person singular or is it the first person plural and how are those things related? And Freud is going to invert this model. Freud is gonna go back to the first person singular. Everything is gonna start with the first person singular and we're gonna work our way by the end of today's lecture, we'll get to a theory of society, but we're gonna start with a theory of the individual. Um, and we're gonna start with this problem of consciousness. Consciousness now in relation to the unconscious. So we had the subjective juxtaposed with the objective and now we're gonna add to that what is conscious juxtaposed to what is unconscious. So those are things that are gonna be overlapping but, but distinct, so just put that new kind of dualism in your mind. Um, Rosa Luxemburg was already hinting at it in her critique of Lenin's idea of the vanguard in her The Role of the Organization and Revolutionary Activity, which she writes in 1904 in response to Stodielat, and she says, the unconscious comes before the conscious, the logic of the historical process comes before the subjective logic of the human beings who participate participate in the process. So there are, she's there kind of identifying the unconscious with the objective. What is kind of going on outside our subjective consciousness. Um, but now we're gonna turn and we're gonna really kind of delve into with Freud. We're gonna kind of drill into this relationship within subjectivity between what is conscious and what is unconscious. Um, and, and one thing I'll talk, Freud is a kind of wild character. I mean, he's, of all the people I teach in this course, Freud is probably the person I've been reading the longest. I mean, I think I wandered across Freud as, as an adolescent. Um, so Freud's been with me really my whole conscious life to some extent, and I've gone through various different phases of relating to him. Um, and he's an interesting character because he's a very speculative thinker. Some ideas he has seem wild, crazy, completely bizarre, have long been discarded. And other ideas have so deeply been absorbed into our collective knowledge and collective understanding that they're no longer even identified with him. So there's the things that just seem completely bizarre and there's the things that now seem so obvious you know, as to be self-evident. 
Um, and he has all those things in him. So if you've ever heard phrases like, you know, unconscious, Oedipal conflict, neuroses, Freudian slips, when you say something you didn't mean to say, but maybe you did mean to say it, um, sibling rivalry, narcissism, this is all Freudian language that's become absorbed in, in our general language. Um, the other thing I want to say about him as a kind of an introduction is that he's kind of, he's, we're going to end up with juxtaposing him with Marx. He's going to be the opposite pole from Marx in many ways, but he's going to be asking a very similar question. You know, he is a theorist of modernity. He is responding to the predicament of modernity. And like Marx, he is saying, why are people unhappy in the modern world? Why are we miserable? Um, it's a good question. We're still working on it. Huh? Okay, Freud was born in 1856, and he is the second of this triumvirate of rebels against positivism we're talking about. Um, he was born three years between Hus uh, before Husserl and Bergson, who were the other two big critics of positivism, rebelling against positivism. He was born in a small Moravian town in what was then the Habsburg Empire. Um, his father was a rather poor, um, assimilated Jewish merchant. His mother was 20 years younger than his father. I mention this because much literature has been devoted to the subject of Freud's family biography and how it's influenced his thinking. Um, he's, there's a huge literature about Freud's Jewishness, um, and so I'll just bookmark a couple things here. He grew up with no religious education. He entered university as an atheist and he remained an atheist throughout his life. Um, but being a Jew in the Habsburg Empire certainly shaped a lot of his life. Um, the family moved to Vienna when he was very young in 1860, um, when Freud was almost four, and the appeal of moving to Vienna was that restrictions on Jews were being, uh, were, were being overcome and were being lifted at that time. So all over Europe, Jews didn't have the same rights of citizenship as, as other people. Although we're talking about an empire here, so there were really no citizens. There were subjects of the empire. Um, but we were on the verge of Jewish emancipation in the sense that Jews would have the same rights that other people and the empire had. And Vienna was becoming a mecca for a lot of Jewish immigrants from all parts of the Habsburg Empire. His early interests were literary. He was very into Shakespeare. He was very into the German poets. And he always what had an attraction to thinking big. You know, he always was drawn to what are the great mysteries at the heart of, of human existence. He studies medicine at the University of Vienna, so he's not just a philosopher with psychological thoughts. He's actually trained as a medical doctor. He's initially absorbed by research in physiology and neurology in the 1870s, and this was the time of the reign of positivism with its objectivist, materialist, empiricist inclinations, and the idea that psychology you know, and biology were things that could be explained purely by physical, material, tangible forces. Um, and he's going to break away from positivism by asserting that the mind could be the cause of its own illnesses. You know, that, that thoughts could be the cause of, of illnesses. That illness could be caused by ideas. You know, again, we've kind of absorbed this now into our general understanding, you know, of mental health, but it was radical at the time. 
1886, at the, end of at the age of 30, um, Freud marries a woman named Martha from northern Germany after what was apparently a very tumultuous courtship, but we won't go into that. They had six children. The youngest child, Anna Freud, becomes one of her father's most important disciples and an eminent theorist of psychoanalysis in, in her own right. Um, he goes through various phases of experimenting with different things to try to understand how the mind works and how mental illnesses work. He exper experiments with hypnosis. He experiments with cocaine. Um, he's interested in this, uh, this illness that was then called hysteria, which was thought to be associated exclusively with women and theorized to have to do with a malfunctioning of the womb, of the uterus. Um, Freud is going to rebel against this idea um, and look at how mental stimuli can cause mental illness, and he starts more and more to specialize in these nervous ailments. Um, his first, the first breakthrough I want to mention that has stayed with us is this idea that what was then called hysteria you know, and kind of encompasses what today would be probably a whole variety of psychological diagnoses having to do with anxiety. Um, he hypothesizes that hysteria is the result of a repressed childhood trauma, usually some kind of sexual molestation or sexual seduction, and that this repressed memory returns in the disguised form of a neurotic symptom. And what is radical here is the idea that people can fall ill because of memories. That memories are, are real things. That they can have real health effects. Um, now later, Freud is going to revise this view and decide that no actual traumatic sexual experience need have occurred, that it was enough for such a traumatic experience to have been imagined or fantasized about or wished for or somehow come into someone's mind. And this is still a more radical break from positivism because it suggests that now illnesses can have no connection with some kind of actual tangible empirical event at all, that they can be purely thought-based. That, that mental illness doesn't need to be yoked to a historical occurrence, that memories can cause mental illness, but so can fantasies. So can fantasies, or so they can be dark fantasies, they can be nightmares. Um, and this leads to a notion of psychologism in which kind of the psychic life of an individual is now going to be understood more on its own terms, more as a thing unto itself, and not something that is derivative of some kind of biological or, or chemical process. Um, now, a lot of what Freud is going to write about is how neurotic symptoms are substitutes for sexual satisfaction. And the very short version of Freud is that everything is about sexual repression. If you're not sure, it's about sexual repression. <laughs> That's kind of his underlying kind of or causality. Um, um, the process he is then going to develop to treat these illnesses 
is going to become psychoanalysis. There is another Anna, Anna then is now is a very common name, who is going to Anna O, who is the founding patient of psychoanalysis. And the, psycho, the treatment of these psychic disorders still more radically is going to be purely through talking. Um, he's then going to get into later analyzing dreams. Um, he analyzes first one of his own dreams, which becomes a model for psychoanalytic dream interpretation. In 1896, for the first time, he invokes the term psychoanalysis. Um, like with the Communist Manifesto, these things are out there, but it takes some time for them to percolate. It takes some time for them to kind of catch on and disperse. Um, in 1902, he's appointed an associate professor at the University of Vienna, and that leads to connections with other physicians and professors of medicine. In 1908, you have the convening of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. To this day, psychoanalysis is deeply associated with Vienna. Um, but it, it takes some time before these ideas catch on. Um, there's going to be later a kind of split among his successors, a little bit like the Hasidim, and you know, what about like the disciples, and who is he going to anoint as his successor, and Jung goes off in one direction, Adler goes off in another direction, but I, I won't go into that here. Um, what I wanna, where I want to take you now, um, and what I've given you for your reading, is the moment at which psychoanalysis really becomes popularized, which is during the First World War, right before the Bolshevik Revolution, and these kind of 1915 university lectures, which turn into the 1917 book, Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis. And this is when he starts to get a broad audience. Um, he remains in Vienna um, on Berggasse. Um, if you're in Vienna on Berggasse, you can go see his office and the apartment where he lived, and there's a little cafe and a bookstore and a museum, and it's still there um, in the ninth district of Vienna. He remained there until the Anschluss came in March 1938, um, when Hitler absorbed Vienna, when Hitler absorbed all of Austria, in fact, and then he left Vienna for Paris and then London, um, and he died in September 1939, just a couple weeks after the Second World War broke out, um, asking his physician for a lethal dose of, of morphine. He was very ill at the time. Um, okay, that's, that's all I'm going to say at the moment about Freud's biography. Uh, I want you to kind of have it in the back of your mind because he, he lives in some ways a life that is emblematic, you know, of a, a Habsburg German-speaking Jew of his generation. And I want to take you into him as a theory first of person, a theorist of personality and then a theorist of society and how those things are connected. Um, so what is psychoanalysis? Psychoanalysis is a procedure for the treatment of neurotic patients. Um, what it really is, is the process by which the unconscious is coaxed into revealing itself. And so the key concepts here are repression. Repression is a big Freudian word. Um, repression and the unconscious. I'll keep coming back to this idea of the unconscious from a few different angles in the next 25 minutes or so. Um, in general, for Freud, everything important happens in the unconscious. Um, the key principle is the primacy of the unconscious. 
and neuroses and in a more extreme form, psychoses, all of these things are the result of things that are repressed repressed desires usually in the unconscious that are kind of sneaking out, you know, in these insidious and debilitating forms. Um, these desires that have been repressed that are manifesting themselves as guilt, as neurotic symptoms. All kinds of sublimation, all kinds of repressed trauma is going to lead to mental illness. Now, as you can see, this means that everybody is going to be mentally ill because there's nobody who doesn't have repressed trauma. Um, Okay, um, now Freud knows that what he's saying is disturbing and radical, and you'll see this as you do the reading. You get a sense of his feeling kind of alienated from his own audience. You get a sense of his defensiveness. I'll just read you a couple quotes here so you have a little bit of his voice in your mind. Um, his feeling that the whole world is against him. And he says in these introductory lectures, the first of these displeasing propositions of psychoanalysis is this that mental processes are essentially unconscious, and that those which, which are conscious are merely isolated acts and parts of the whole psychic entity. The psychoanalytical definition of the mind is that it comprises processes of the nature of feeling, thinking, and wishing, and it maintains that there are such things as unconscious thinking and unconscious wishing. But in so doing, psychoanalysis has forfeited at the outset the sympathy of the sober and scientifically minded and incurred the suspicion of being a fantastic cult occupied with dark and unfathomable mysteries. So you see he's a little bit defensive. Um, the first thing here he's trying to establish is the reality of the unconscious. I'll read you one more quote. It seems like an empty wrangle over words to argue whether mental life is to be regarded as coexistent with consciousness or whether it may be said to stretch beyond this limit. And yet I can assure you that the acceptance of unconscious mental processes represents a decisive step towards a new orientation in the world and in science. Okay. So the unconscious is, prim is, is primal and it's primary and it gets started very early. So one of the things you see with Freud, you know, at the, and I want you to have Robespierre's idea in your head now, we go all the way back to childhood. Really, we go all the way back to birth as this formative moment. The idea of times that are formative. This idea, how do you get from the old world to the new world? You are formed for Freud from a very young age, and he spends a lot of time thinking about babyhood and thinking about childhood. So childhood is both formative and it's necessarily traumatic. Um, another one of his claims that was seen as more, very disturbing at the time is that sexuality begins in childhood. And you'll notice with Freud that his definition of the sexual is extremely expansive. You know, it goes far beyond genital intercourse. When you, and when you see him talk about, when, he, when you see words like sexual perversion used, basically anything that is not kind of reproductive genital intercourse gets, you know, gets thrown into the label of sexual perversion. But the important thing for you to get here is that sexuality is kind of everywhere for Freud. 
and it's not limited to sexual intercourse. It's a much more expansive concept. So this idea of childhood sexuality, it doesn't mean that babies are having sex or little kids are having sex, but it's this notion of sexuality, sexual desires that's going to encompass more than actual sexual intercourse. Okay, uh, so he spends a lot of time obsessing about how sexuality begins in early childhood. The only hope for widespread alleviation of, of trauma would be to stop repressing childhood sexuality. This vulnerability of the ego in childhood, this like the vulnerability of the ego to guilt when a child wants things and then was told that they're bad. Um, Neuroses for Freud are basically a question of degree. This how everybody is repressed in childhood. Growing up is about repression. Living is about repression. We'll get back to this in a few minutes in his theory of society. The question is of degree. So we're back in this kind of Hegelian when quantity changes into quality as to whether or not we're just a little bit neurotic or whether or not we're like psychotic and mentally ill. <laughs> um, it's a, just a kind of continuum for Freud in that sense. But the short version is that everything is about sexual repression um, and the pillars of psychoanalysis have to do with the unconscious and childhood sexuality. Um, I also want to mention in particular this idea of the Oedipus complex. Um, you've probably read the story of Oedipus Rex, um, where the, the Greek legend of King Oedipus, who was destined by fate to kill his father and marry his mother, and he does everything possible to make sure this doesn't happen, but strangely enough, it happens anyway. Um, and he has this idea that one of the almost universal motifs that run through childhood um, has to do with this formative stage in a child's psychosexual development when a young child transfers his love object from the breast, from breastfeeding, um, to the mother, and the child then desires the mother and resents the father who is getting in the way of the child's access to the mother, and then Freud says even secretly desires the murder of the father. Now, he doesn't go as far as to say that most children murder their fathers. That's obviously not true. But it's enough for Freud that that thought might flicker, you know, across somebody's mind or that somebody might have a dream about it, this kind of fantasy of getting rid of the father and possessing the mother. Um, and he says these kind of desires are very quickly repressed. They're generally unconscious. They're shoved into the unconscious. Um, but they, they come out again like everything else in the unconscious. Um, Okay, the unconscious, I should say here, one way to think of it is you know, um, Paul Robinson, who was one of my professors in graduate school, who's a, a European intellectual historian and really a Freudian above all, he liked to describe the unconscious as a kind of dark psychic closet, um, which is a metaphor I like. The unconscious is like a kind of dark closet and everything that is too disturbing for the conscious mind gets thrown into that closet shoved into that closet, you know? And so that closet gets stuffed with more and more stuff over the course of a lifetime. It just keeps filling up and filling up and filling up, you know? And nothing ever really goes away. It just keeps getting shoved into the closet. Okay, I now wanna take you through this kind of model of, of Freud's model of the self, which is, I'm going to kind of try to divide it into the horizontal and the vertical here. Um, it's a structural model of the self, and it's a structuralist model of the self. And I know we haven't talked about structuralism in this course, but we will later, in which the parts fit together. 
And in order to understand the whole thing, you've got to understand how the parts fit together. Um, so the two vertical layers are unconscious and conscious. You know, so there's part of the self that is submerged in the unconscious, which in some sense is the more important part, and then there's the top layer, which is the conscious part. Um, one way to think about this is on the metaphor of Marx's idea of base and superstructure. Because the unconscious part that is at the bottom is always going to be more important. It's going to be more causal. It's going to be more, for it's going to be more formative. Um, but now running across kind of horizontally through those things, you get a tripartite model of the self. You get three parts. The id, the ego, and the superego. And this is all on your handout, so you don't have to. Um, the id, which in the original German is das S, which is just it, the it, the thing. Um, the ego, which again, this is clear in the original German, is das ich, which is the I, the self. And the superego, which is das uber ich, you may remember the, the, the uber prefix from ubermensch, like that which is kind of superior to and over the I. Um, so again, this is all in your handout. You don't have to remember this from just my telling you now. So the id, the ego, and the superego. These parts fit together. And this is the horizontal structure that kind of runs through this vertical structure. So the id, das s, the it, is just pure libido. It's just desire. Um, it's basically unconscious. Um, now desire for Freud is kind of also subdivided into two parts. And that those two parts, those two kinds of desire are hardwired. Like you've just got to accept them like the postulates in geometry. It's just there. He doesn't prove them, he just throws them out. And those two big like categories of desire are eros and thanatos. You know, and eros is the love drive. You know, it's lust, it's sex, it's pleasure. Thanatos is the death drive, it's aggression, it's killing, it's anger. You know, and then lots of things involve a combination, as you can imagine. But Eros and Thanatos are like, they're just there. They're hardwired. They're always already. They don't have to come from anywhere, they're just like, they're primordial. Um, so the id is this pure desire, it's Eros and Thanatos. The superego is conscience. So not consciousness, but conscience. Conscience telling you what is good or bad. And in the Freudian model, basically, conscience is always saying bad, 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 bad. You're bad. Um, so there's like the conscience is a source of guilt. It's also society internalized. You know, it's that part of the self that's always telling you you're doing something wrong. Um, so the id and the superego, as you can imagine, are at war with each other constantly. You know, because the id wants and the superego says, no, that's bad. And das ich, the I, the ego, is then in the position of having to negotiate between the id and the superego. Now, once you take in this model, it's obvious why everyone is miserable all the time. <laughs> because what does the self do but have to negotiate constantly, every moment of every day, between these two opposing forces that can find no space of compromise, or no easy space of compromise. 
So you also see a bit of a kind of Hegelian dialectic here, right? Because the self is always in conflict with the self, you know, and you always, everything is always emerging from these two antagonistic forces. It's very dialectical. Okay. So you've got this, you've got the life instinct, you've got the death instinct. These are universal. This is also the thing about Freud. These are, he, you know, he, he thinks big. For Freud, everyone is hardwired this way. It doesn't matter where you live, what color your skin is, what language you speak. This is, I mean, he, he purports to be speaking to everyone. I mean, Hannah Arendt then has this very sarcastic comment in one of her essays that says, like, if it hadn't been that Freud was hanging around with, like, a whole bunch of, you know, German-speaking, you know, Habsburg Jews reading a lot of Goethe and Shakespeare in Vienna, we might never have heard of the Oedipus Complex. I'll, I'll just leave that aside. Um, <laughs> but for Freud's idea is that this is universal, pertains to everybody. Okay. Um, the self is a closed energy system. So think about like conservation of matter. So things that get, you know, energy can get moved around, but it doesn't go away. You can't really get rid of stuff. The ego is constantly having to negotiate between these antagonistic forces and you can't like throw stuff out of the model. Once it's there, it's there. I'll come back to this at the end. The self is a closed energy system. There's a lot of sublimation. There's a zero-sum principle. Psychic energy moves from one kind of behavior to another. Repressed desires don't disappear. They come back in some form. This is where you get the famous Freudian phrase, return of the repressed. You know, it doesn't work to just shove stuff in the closet. It will, as my, my psychoanalyst friend, Yurko Prohasko, likes to say, what we push out the door will come climbing back in through the window. Um, the way Yurko gave, gave a brilliant lecture on psychoanalysis this summer in Lviv, which was translated by a brilliant interpreter named Pavlo. So if I can get a transcript of this, I will post it for you. Um, I'll post the English version of you because he's just, he's a great speaker about this. Um, but this idea that you, you try to throw something out, but it will sneak back in. Thwarted aggression will turn inwards back towards ourselves. Okay, so what is psychoanalysis then? It's the process by which you sit and talk to an analyst, and you coax the unconscious into revealing itself. It's not gonna reveal itself entirely, but things might slip out through cracks. Now that doesn't magically fix them, but it enables them to be dealt with to some extent. So what happens in psychoanalysis is just talking. You know, there's an analyst and there's an analysand, and you're supposed to like sit there and speak as freely as possible. You know, it involves, I've never actually done this, although I've always been very curious, but it would involve a whole lot of time because you're supposed to do it several times a week. Um, you like lie on a couch, you do a lot of free associating. Um, it can't be observed by a third person. So if you want to train to be a psychoanalyst, the only way to do that is to go through analysis because there can be no third person observer in the room because it's all about the kind of magic that happens between that relationship between the analyst trying to coax the contents of the unconscious into revealing themselves in such a way that symptoms can be alleviated and they can be dealt with. It's just talking. It's just the power of words. 
Um, now, the thing that's very bourgeois about this is that to be in analysis is a major investment of both money and time. I mean, you're supposed to do it several times a week, and like, I don't know how expensive it was you know, in the 1910s or the 1920s. I'm sure it's extremely expensive now, but you need to have a lot of leisure time to like, you know, go see your analyst every day and free associate for a while. Um, <laughs> but that, that is the procedure, the idea that you can heal illness just by talking and thereby gain access, kind of peer into the cracks of that unconscious. Okay, let me now, in the last 10 minutes, talk about how this then go back to the, back to the we part. So that's the I. The I is always, the I is constructed in this tripartite model. It's a closed energy system. It has two vertical layers and three horizontal parts. Um, everything is about repression of desires. The coaxing of those desires into consciousness can alleviate mental illness. Now, how does this play into a theory of society? Um, there are various aspects to Freud's theory of society. Um, the first I'm going to mention has to do with his atheism, which is that religion is a reactionary illusion. And it kind of goes back to his idea about childhood and the parents and the role of the parents. Um, and this, you, you can you can tell that this was somebody who really had a lot of issues with his father. Because a lot of this is about like a son's relationship with fathers. You know, so the father, you want to kill the father, you want to sleep with the mother. Um, but then there's also the moment when you realize the father is not all powerful. The father is not omnipotent. The father cannot actually protect you from all the horrors of the world. For Freud, this is a source of God, or rather the source of belief in God. You then have to transfer that desire for the all-powerful father figure onto something else once you've become disillusioned with your own father. Um, and a child growing comes more and more to see the limited capacities of his father. The father's not immortal. The father's not omnipotent. And so you project this fantasy onto God. For Freud, therefore, God is essentially an infantile phenomenon. We want there to be, <coughs> to be some being who is going to take care of us, who is omnipotent for all eternity. But there is no such being. It's an infantile desire. Um, okay. Um, let me now take you to his idea of civilization, um, which goes back to these Enlightenment discussions about the state of nature and the state of culture. Um, when Freud says civilization, again, this is an enlightenment word, he's using it also very broadly as a body of artifacts and achievements, but also the whole fact of our living together, the fact that we don't live alone, that we live together in society. Um, he is in the camp um, of the enlightenment thinkers who think that society is basically going to make us unhappy. Um, for somewhat different reasons. You get, there's, it's a very Rousseauian and inverted way. That civilization makes us unhappy, it's at odds with individual fulfillment, it's based on sexual repression, it's also based on the repression of Thanatos. So both Eros and Thanatos have to be repressed in order for us to live together in society. The child soon learns, Freud says, to exchange pleasure for social respectability. 
Um, so Freud is kind of joining this enlightenment discussion about civilization versus a state of nature, and he sees the state of nature as a state of freedom. But that state of freedom, which is very liberating, and he acknowledges that, also includes a lot of violence and aggression. You know, and that's, you know, that's the deal. You know, if you want freedom, there's a lot of violence and aggression. And this instinct that human beings have towards aggression leads to a perpetual threat of social disintegration. So living together in society is psychically costly for us because really, Freud says, we want to rape and kill one another all the time. You know, and society is about repressing those desires because it's not really functional for us to live together when we're raping and killing one another all the time. Um, and so a lot of energy has to go into constantly overcoming these desires. Now again, for Freud, these aren't conscious desires necessarily. They're unconscious desires, they're, they're repressed. Um, and he has this idea of psychic economy. So the more energy we spend overcoming these desires, you know, the more we're kind of drained of energy that we could otherwise use for pleasure. So there's this kind of aggression then, that aggression that would be turned towards other people is kind of turned towards ourselves, you know, as we kind of repress ourselves and are aggressive towards ourselves in order to kind of curb the impulses we have to rape and kill one another all the time. Essentially, remember Hobbes said that society was about exchanging liberty for security. Um, for Freud, society is about exchanging happiness for security. Um, that the pleasure principle, you know, getting what we really want, what our id tells us we want, is just necessarily at odds with the reality principle that enables us to live together. And here I'll read you another quote. We believe that civilization has been created under the pressure of the exigencies of life at the cost of satisfaction of the instincts, and we believe that civilization is to a large extent being constantly created anew since each individual who makes a fresh entry into human society repeats this sacrifice of instinctual satisfaction for the benefit of the whole community. Society, Freud says, believes that no greater threat to its civilization could arise than if the sexual instincts were to be liberated. The child quickly learns to exchange pleasure for social respectability. I used to tell this to like my baby when like he was like on the diaper changing table and squirming around and didn't want to put his clothes on. It was like babies often don't want to get dressed and I'm like society is all about exchanging, like exchanging pleasure for social respectability. We've got to put our clothes on. Like, um, everything like that, you know, the fact that we don't run around naked even if we feel like this is all about exchanging pleasure for social respectability. Um, now for Freud, there's no choice. He's not saying we should run around raping and killing one another. He's just saying that this is necessarily you know, the human condition. Okay, let me just briefly say a couple things in conclusion. Freud shares a lot with the Marxist. A grandiose scope, a model in which the relationship between the unconscious and the conscious is very pa much parallel to the relationship between base and superstructure. Um, an idea of kind of determinism and monocausality, not temporal determinism, but determinism on an individual level, that there are factors that are hardwired into us that determine who we are. Um, for Freud, everything is about repression. For Marx, everything is about the class struggle. Simone de Beauvoir, you'll see, has a very good critique of both of these ideas of monocausality. 
He's a structuralist, meaning is relational. These parts only make sense together. Um, for Freud, religion is the opiate of the masses. For Freud, religion is an infantile illusion that obstructs psychic reality. Now, the difference is Freud is an, an anti-materialist. Um, what property is for Marx, sexuality is for Freud. Um, guilt is for Freud. What we will see that power is for Foucault. It is everywhere. It's radically dispersed. It's implicit in all relationships. Freud says to the Marxist, you don't take Thanatos into account. The Marxists think they can change conditions and aggressive instincts will go away. And Freud says, no, it's hardwired. There, there's no way out. Aggression is not created by private property. It predates capitalism. And then the Marxists turn around and say psychoanalysis is the last bourgeois attempt to stave off the revolution. So, um, okay. Um, just a couple things I want you to keep in your mind in conclusion. For Freud, everything important happens in the unconscious, and the self is not identical to the self. The self is always in conflict with the self, and the self is never transparent to itself. We cannot know ourselves, because what is most fundamental about us is hidden in the unconscious. You know, so when you think about some of these political discussions about can one person understand another? Can you understand really the experience? Can you know somebody from some different group, from some different ethnicity? Freud would say we can't even know ourselves. There's never going to be any even perfect self-knowledge. We are never going to be self-identical. The self, there's a kind of romantic tradition here too. The self is always a, a deep mystery. Um, okay, psychoanalysis is a theory of both personality and society, and it's also a practice. And I, I want to leave you with a couple things that, that Yurko was saying at his lecture in Lviv this summer. And he was talking about psychoanalysis as a theory of modernity and saying it's like it parallels modernity in that once something gets into the structure of modernity, there's no way out. Once something gets into the self, it can't be removed. The unconscious contains everything. The individual imitates modernity in this sense. Um, the other thing he tells us is that there's a kind of tension between longing for the absolute, longing for authority, and a desire to undermine that authority, this tension between what we want and what we know we shouldn't have, this perpetual conflict. And Yurko says psychoanalysis is really a theory of life after the death of God. When we reject, we reject God but look for windows to crawl back in, it's a theory of complexity itself in the sense that it's a theory of the impossibility of non-contradiction. You know, and, and this, is, this is the idea I kind of want to leave you with, that in psychoanalysis, unlike in Marxism, there is no way out. I mean, psychoanalysis can kind of alleviate some of the symptoms. But basically, the self is in conflict with the self, society is in conflict with happiness, and there's no restructuring of social conditions that can promise any happily ever after. Um, and I'll, I'll leave you with this idea that came to me in 2016 when I was looking at the surveys of what people found so appealing about Trump. You know, and why, given the way he's speaking about women and given the way he's speaking about other people, do people find this so, so appealing? Why do they say that, well, he seems to be honest? And I thought, oh, what he was offering people is, now you see a woman walking down the street and you want to rape her. Now you can say that aloud. You know, now everything is permitted. Now that's okay. Now I have liberated you from repression. Now we are being honest. 
And that is its own kind of honesty, Freud would say. It's not you know, truth in the sense of correspondence between empirical reality, but it's honesty in the sense of expressing and inhibited the libido. And Freud would say that that kind of liberation from repression is authentic liberation, for which, however, we pay the small price of the destruction of civilization. I'll leave you with that cheery thought, and I'll see you next week. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.